everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast. It's your host, Dr. Colby Taylor. I'm a psychologist in the state of Tennessee and an associate professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University, where we're currently on fall break. So happy fall, y'all. Um, we're on fall break. I get to record an episode uh, midway through the semester. You know, I was talking to my um, abnormal psychology class, my psychopathology class, and uh, they didn't think the Reading Wars episode was too juicy. So hopefully this episode will tickle your fancy. Tickle your fancy because it's going to be on sensory processing disorder. Although I still think reading is really exciting. I mean, as humans, reading, writing, I mean, those are like two of the most phenomenal things we as a human species have done. But anyways, we're going to focus on sensory processing disorder in this episode. This is going to be a multidisciplinary topic. So it's a topic that would be of interest to occupational therapists, speech therapists, psychologists, physical therapists, pediatricians, neurologists. I'm sure I'm leaving other specialties out, but it's a multidisciplinary topic. Um, I'm really excited about this episode. I've done a lot of homework over the last couple of weeks on sensory processing disorder. Um, in this episode, we'll touch on three important women. So one of the cool things about SPD is that almost all the key figures in the story of sensory processing disorder are women. Um, this is a controversial topic. So again, going back to being juicy, um, it's controversial among healthcare and mental health care workers. Um, some will say that it doesn't exist. Some will say that it's just autism or ADHD uh, that's unrecognized. Uh, many providers aren't aware that there's such a thing as sensory processing disorder. And I guess whether it does exist as a diagnosis is a little bit controversial because in our most frequently used nosologies, if you'll remember back to episode one or two of this podcast, a nosology is a classification of diseases. So the DSM-5 text revision, that's a nosology that I talk about a lot in this podcast, or the ICD-10, the International Classification of Diseases, version 10 or version 11, there's no sensory processing disorder in there. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends against giving it as a standalone diagnosis. So it's probably not something that you'll walk into a pediatrician or psychologist office and get the diagnosis of sensory processing disorder. I do see a lot of occupational therapists, speech therapists, and physical therapists giving this diagnosis um, because it's more popular and well-known among SLPs and especially among occupational therapists. As we talk about those three important women in this podcast, all three of them uh, were occupational therapists. Another controversial thing about sensory processing disorder is experts in this can't really agree on a name. It's probably most commonly referred to as sensory processing disorder, but it's also referred to as sensory integration disorder, sensory modulation disorder, sensory integration dysfunction, and that sensory integration dysfunction is actually the OG name. It's the original name. It dates back to the 1960s, but I don't hear many people call it sensory integration dysfunction anymore. And we also have sensory dysregulation or sensory regulation dysfunction. So that's so many different names. Again, there's a lot of controversy with this diagnosis. Um, speaking of controversy, there's widely varying prevalence estimates. Most prevalence estimates that I've encountered in my homework and doing this episode range from 5 to 15% of children. So that's a pretty wide range and it would also be pretty common. So about one in 10 kids would have sensory processing disorder. It should be something we know more about. Again, there's a lot of controversy here. Um, it seems to affect more males more than females. So males seem to be twice as affected as females. Um, okay, so what is sensory processing disorder? 
Um, it's got sensory in the name, so it can affect any of our senses. And how many senses we have is way up for debate. Um, you know, when I was in kindergarten, we learned that we had five senses. We had touch, we had smell, we had taste, we had hearing. Um, what am I missing? Touch, smell, taste, hearing. Oh, seeing. We had sight. Um, there could be as many as 30 senses. So if you talk to a neuroscientist, um, they might tell you that we have 30 or even 50. I've seen estimates of 50 plus senses. Um, when we're talking sensory processing disorder, we're talking the original five senses plus maybe three senses. So um, usually definitions of this will go up to eight senses. Um, in addition to those five senses that I listed out, we have interoception, proprioception, and vestibular senses. Um, I had a sort of an embarrassing story um, once I was interviewing a parent and, you know, I do a lot of autism um, diagnoses, a lot of autism assessment. I was sitting down with the parent and I was asking whether the child has any sensory sensitivities. And in describing this, I said, you know, are, are they overly sensitive or under sensitive to any of the five senses? And the parent corrected me. She was like, excuse me, we have eight senses. Um, so... I don't know how many senses we have, five, eight, 30, 50, who knows? Um, speaking of autism, we're going to have an overlap with neurodevelopmental disorders, autism and ADHD in particular. Um, there's some estimates that 80 to 90% of sensory processing disorder diagnoses um, would be comorbid or also meet diagnostic criteria for either autism or ADHD. There could also be some overlap with misophonia. So season three, episode 13, I did an episode on misophonia. Um, there's a lot of parallels between misophonia and sensory processing disorder, particularly sensory processing disorder that affects auditory stuff. So related to the sense of hearing. Um, all right, so a lot of overlap, autism, ADHD, but what's often ignored when talking about sensory processing disorder is that people that have this diagnosis or that would meet diagnostic criteria, whatever the diagnostic criteria is, um, would be at a fourfold greater risk for anxiety disorders and other mood disorders. So that's often ignored when talking about sensory processing disorder, but you know, 400 times greater risk of anxiety and mood disorders, pretty high. Okay. Let's keep going with the definition of sensory processing disorder by talking about one of the women that was integral in understanding this disorder. So the first woman we're going to talk about is Winnie Dunn. Um, Winnie Dunn is going to be the author of the sensory profile, which is a measure that I'll discuss in a bit when we talk about assessment of sensory processing disorder. But Winnie Dunn has a four quadrant explanation of sensory processing. So picture sort of an XY axis, X, Y axes on a plane, a Cartesian plane. So we've got two axes. We've got sensitivity. And so on one end of the sensitivity axis, you have hypersensitivity. And on the other end of the sensitivity axis, you have hyposensitivity. So they're going to be at opposite ends. And then on the uh, perpendicular axis, we're going to have self-regulation um, with passive self-regulation on one end and active self-regulation on the other. Active regulation, passive regulation, and then hypersensitivity and hyposensitivity. All right, that gives us four quadrants if you're drawing this out. So if you have low sensitivity, which we call hyposensitivity, and passive self-regulation, you're classified into the low registration quadrant. With low registration, you might appear disinterested or aloof to your surroundings. Things that other people are sensing literally might not register to you. And this sort of gets into a concept called sensory gating. So sensory gating is really important in like 
cognitive psychology, sensory gating is the ability to filter out information. So an example of sensory gating would be the cocktail party effect. And I discussed the cocktail party effect back when I was talking about executive functioning. So the cocktail party effect, imagine that you're at a cocktail party and there's a lot of loud ambient noise. There's clinking of glasses from waiters or waitresses. Um, there's a lot of different conversations that are going on, but somehow you're able to talk with a conversation partner and filter all of that extraneous environmental stimuli out. Um, that's sensory gating. Um, okay, so we talked about the first quadrant. Let's go to the second quadrant. So if you have low sensitivity, which we call hyposensitivity again, and then active self-regulation, you're classified into the sensory seeking quadrant. So you might engage in sensory seeking behaviors that can mimic ADHD. And some of these behaviors could be dangerous. Um, you might be seeking out thrills. Uh, and if you remember in my episode on ADHD, I mentioned that there's a correlation between breaking bones, so having bone fractures, and ADHD. And this would come from that sensory seeking sort of quadrant here. Okay, next quadrant, two down, two to go. Um, if you have high sensitivity, which we call hypersensitivity, and passive self-regulation, you're classified into the sensory sensitive quadrant. Here you might experience sensory overload but you don't really try to escape from the overload. So you can't really process or make sense of everything. You're not really trying to escape it. You're just sort of overwhelmed. Um, and then the last quadrant, if you have high sensitivity, hypersensitivity, and active self-regulation, you're classified into the sensory avoiding quadrant. So you have the same sensory overload that sensory sensitives have, but you're actively trying to shut it down. You're trying to tune it out. And by tuning it out, you might engage in avoidant behaviors. And whether this is covering your ears or wearing gloves or experiencing meltdowns, these would all be sensory avoidance. So that's Winnie's Dunn's um, model of sensory processing. And it touches on some important concepts. I already mentioned sensory gating. I sort of mentioned sensory registration. So because we had low registers, that was that first quadrant I talked about. Sensory registration is your ability to pick up on things in the environment using your senses. Do they actually, do things register to you with your senses? Um, and so we would have low sensory registration or high sensory registration. Um, another important concept that sort of touched on in this is sensory defensiveness, which we tend to see with that last quadrant I talked about with the sensory avoidance quadrant. Um, with sensory defensiveness, you tend to be hypersensitive to your environments. So you have that high sensitivity. Um, and then you're defensive against it. And again, you're trying to avoid it, usually um, through, you know, again, covering your ears, wearing gloves, experiencing meltdowns, what have you. Okay, so we talked about Winnie Dunn. Let's talk about another important woman, and that's Lucy Jane Miller. And Lucy Jane Miller has an alternative model. It's really a taxonomy of sensory processing disorder. And in Lucy Jane Miller's taxonomy of sensory processing disorder, you have sensory processing disorder that's broken down into three sub-disorders. Um, the first sub-disorder would be sensory modulation disorder. And sensory modulation disorder um, could involve sensory over-responsitivity, which would sort of go along with the hypersensitivity that we talked about in Winnie Dunn's model. Um, sensory under-responsivity, which should sound like hyposensitivity to you. And then sensory seeking or sensory craving. So that would be sensory modulation disorder. Uh, there's a separate disorder um, that would be under the umbrella of sensory processing disorder, and that would be sensory-based motor disorder. Um, so a lot of people couple 
uh, certain motor disorders, particularly what we call dyspraxia, which um, dyspraxia is sometimes called developmental coordination disorder or DCD. Um, dyspraxia means basically clumsiness. You're uncoordinated and you have motor difficulties that aren't related to neurological conditions like cerebral palsy or muscular dystrophy. So sensory-based motor disorders would include dyspraxia and then maybe disorders involving posture. And then, so we had sensory modulation disorder, sensory-based motor disorder, and then um, Lucy Jane Miller's model includes sensory discrimination disorder. Sensory discrimination disorder, again, all of these are under the umbrella of sensory processing disorder, but sensory discrimination disorder um, would involve your senses and you wouldn't be able to necessarily uh, discriminate between like visual senses or auditory senses and all sorts of sort of blends together to you and you have a really hard time parsing apart um, different sensory experiences. Um, so that's a lot, uh, but that's Lucy Jane Miller's model. Um, you can look it up online um, and see her sort of taxonomy. Again, it hasn't really caught on though in seeing these separate diagnoses of sensory modulation disorder, sensory-based motor disorder, what have you. All right, let's talk neurology. So searching for neurological biomarkers, and a biomarker is sort of a biological cue, can be a smoking gun sign, some sort of neurological correlate when we're talking about, it wouldn't even have to be neurological correlate, some sort of somatic correlate, some sort of bodily correlate, an indicator of a disease. And searching for biomarkers related to sensory processing disorder is literally all over the place all over the place in that research can't agree, and then all over the place in the brain. It's sort of neurally diffuse. So there's biomarkers maybe in the front of the brain. So the frontal cortex might be involved in differences in organizing sensory experiences. And this sort of goes back to executive functioning. So I did an episode on executive functioning in season three. You can go back and listen to that. And this makes sense that you would see frontal cortex differences, especially when we're talking about like sensory gating. So remember I talked about the cocktail party effect in the executive functioning episode. The frontal lobes are heavily involved in executive functioning. Um, and that sort of sensory gating cocktail party effect, um, if you go back to that executive functioning episode, it's part of the component of executive functioning called inhibitory processing. So maybe the front of the brain's involved. But again, biomarkers range from the front of the brain to the back of the brain, where there might be differences in white matter microstructures. And back of the brain stuff sort of makes sense because the back of the brain is involved in motor stuff. Remember we talked about dyspraxia involving motor stuff. Um, and there's also some hypothesized differences with dopamine receptors um, related to sensory processing disorder. And again, dopamine is involved in motor stuff. So this sort of makes sense. Um, but again, research is all over the place. We don't have, I, I don't feel comfortable talking about consistent biomarkers related to sensory processing disorder. Lots of this research is plagued by small sample sizes. Um, we're talking, some of these studies have just a handful of people participating. And then a lot of these studies don't have control groups. Um, so long way to go with discussing the neurology or describing the neurology of sensory processing disorder. Now let's move on to assessment. Um, I'm not somebody that does assessment for sensory processing disorder. But again, because I do a lot of autism assessments, I get a lot of um, reports from occupational therapists and speech language therapists um, that pass over my desk. So I have to be familiar with instruments used to uh, detect or diagnose sensory processing disorder. And the most common one that crosses my desk is the Sensory Profile 2. The Sensory Profile 2 is a questionnaire 
Um, and again, Winnie Dunn was uh, the original author of the sensory profile. Uh, it's a questionnaire that's given to parents. Almost all of these assessments are limited to children. Um, uh, but the questionnaire talks about, um, it asks about different sensory styles. It asks about sensory registration and it classifies kids into, um, mostly like other people or not at all like other people, that sort of thing. Um, so sensory profile two, if you see that, that's probably looking at sensory processing disorder. Um, a measurement that's not a questionnaire that's kind of cool is a sensory integration and praxis test. So this is another commonly administered assessment of sensory processing disorder, and there's 17 subtests that are involved. Um, and one of the cool things about this sensory integration and praxis test, of these 17 subtests, there's some exotically named ones. Like there's the post-rotary nystagmus test. Um, nystagmus is sort of where your eye bounces back and forth. So if you've seen a field sobriety test before, where a police officer is like putting their index finger up and asking you to follow it with your eyes, that can be looking at nystagmus, um, optokinetic nystagmus. Um, uh, some people have nystagmus that's just uh, biological and it's not due from to any sort of condition and they just have naturally occurring nystagmus. Um, other people have like nystagmus when they're, when they're dizzy. Um, anyways, so you have the post-rotary nystagmus test where you would actually like spin somebody around and then look and see how their eye acts. Um, there's another of these 17 subtests. This one kind of cracks me up. It's graphesthesia. And graphesthesia is basically drawing numbers or letters or words on the skin with either like a pen or your finger. And it used to be sort of a game that you might have played as a child where somebody would write on your back with their finger or a pen and not, not like the pen cap would be closed or basically just doing it like it's a stick. And you would try to identify what they're drawing. So you try to identify the word or the letter. Sometimes it would be a picture that they're drawing. So the sensory integration and praxis test has graphesthesia in it, which is kind of cool. Um, another commonly given assessment, this is also questionnaire based, just like the sensory profile too, is a sensory processing measure. So lots of different assessments out there for sensory processing disorder. I'm transitioning into treatment. So as we start talking about treatment, um, we're going to talk about that third important woman. Um, so we've talked about Miller, we've talked about Dunn, now we're going to talk about Ayers. We're going to talk about Anna Jean Ayers. So Anna Jean Ayers, going back to the beginning of this episode, came up with the original name for sensory processing disorder. Um, and if you happen to have a good memory and can remember that OG name, um, the OG name was sensory integration dysfunction. And that dates back to the late 1960s. Um, she was the author of the sensory integration and praxis test. Um, I say was, so Anna Jean Ayers um, passed away, I think it was like 1988, um, late 80s. Um, but that sensory integration and praxis test that I just discussed, um, you know, that involved the graphesthesia and the post-rotary nystagmus, that was anagene errors. Um, and so I mentioned praxis. We talked about dyspraxia and the praxis test. Um, uh, word nerd time. So praxis, um, and if you're an education major or something like that in the United States, you might have to take a praxis test. There's even a praxis test for like school psychology, which I blew out of the water. Um, uh, after I graduated, I had to take the praxis test to get licensed to practice in the schools, and it was just an absolute joke. I think it was like the 99th percentile. Uh, but praxis in Latin means basically sort of like to do. It's where we get practice from. So you talk about dyspraxia, it's like dysfunction in doing. 
So sort of from the Latin for do, but you also have like fashire in Latin. It's also to do, but it basically means practice. It's where you get practice in English from is practice. All right, enough word nerding out. We're talking about treatments or we're supposed to be. Um, so one of the big treatments that goes along with Anna Jean Ayer's sort of conceptualization of sensory processing disorder um, is sensory integration therapy. And sensory integration therapy is big on therapeutic play. So play is a big part of it. Um, you might see sensory gems involved. And one of the cool things about the place that I work at, the place that I work at clinically down at University of Tennessee Health Sciences Center, is um, we're co-located with the School of Occupational Therapy. And the School of Occupational Therapy has this giant sensory gem right next to where I do my psychological work. And in a sensory gym, you might see sensory swings. Um, sensory swings are important for that vestibular sense that I talked about. Um, but there's also trampolines and there's slides. And it just looks really fun, but it's structured fun. So the goal of sensory integration therapy is to have kids or individuals, it doesn't have to be kids, um, tolerate sensory input. They might be uncomfortable. with, And then also help them to organize all of that sensory input. Um, sensory integration therapy can also involve weighted vests. Um, it can involve brushing therapy where brushes are placed on the body um, and that can be comforting to kids or it can also um, make them a little bit uncomfortable and have them uh, try to tolerate the brushing therapy. Um, sometimes brushing therapy is recommended for some of my kids and you know, I have different feelings about it. Um, I like that it could be therapeutic, but I also think that if the child doesn't necessarily need it, like I had one 12 or 13 year old that had a recommendation for brushing therapy and they were getting by just fine in school. And I almost felt like it was more damaging for them, um, for, um, the therapist to call the kid out of class into the, into the class hallway and brush them like three times a day. Um, I don't think that the child actually needed that. And, you know, by the time that you're 12 or 13 years old, that's, looking a little bit awkward. Anyways, I have mixed feelings on brushing therapy. And this is sort of a controversial topic, this whole thing is. Um, so weighted vest, brushing therapy, sensory swings, there's even sensory diets. Um, and I've been doing a lot of research on sensory diets because my two-year-old son, Rowan, is an extremely picky eater, which again, we see a lot of overlap with picky eating with autism spectrum disorder. Um, there is a controversy on the effectiveness of sensory integration therapy. And research is kind of inconclusive about whether it's effective or not, but it is commonly practiced. Okay, my thoughts, my opinions on sensory processing disorder. Um, and I'll probably get some hate mail over this. I do think it's a thing. There are kids out there that really struggle with sensory processing, but I don't know about the current models or taxonomy that we have for sensory processing disorder. I do think a lot of those kids... Um, would fall on the autism spectrum. So sometimes some, most of those kids, but not all of them, um, we might be missing autism. So I think that having a comprehensive autism spectrum assessment before you get to sensory processing disorder, rule out autism, I think that should be the first thing that you do is to rule out autism. Um, but it does sort of make sense to me that you can have sensory processing differences. So, for example, with autism, if you go back and listen to my autism episode, I think I have a couple, but diagnostically in the DSM-5, we have criteria A and we have criteria B that you have to meet for autism. And criteria A involves social communication. And 
if you have criteria A without criteria B, criteria B is patterns of restricted and repetitive behaviors. You can have criteria A without having the restricted repetitive behaviors, and you get a diagnosis of social pragmatic communication disorder. So why not have a criteria B disorder where you're not struggling with social pragmatic communication, but you are struggling with um, criteria B stuff? And criteria B stuff includes sensory sensitivities. So you might not have any social problems at all. Again, we're ruling out criteria A through a comprehensive autism diagnosis, um, but you could have criteria B stuff and maybe we could call that sensory processing disorder. Um, we do have stereotypic movement disorder, but that really only accounts for like one bullet point of criteria B. Sensory, a stereotypic movement disorder would involve like repetitive motor movements, hand flapping, rocking, that sort of thing when you don't have any of the criteria A stuff. But that's really only one bullet point of criteria B. I do think we're seeing a lot more kids with sensory sensitivity. Um, it seems like we have a lot of kids with um, picky diets, um, more picky eaters now than ever before. I mentioned my son, Rowan. Um, and we have a lot of kids that uh, get overwhelmed. We live in a, like a high sensory environment. There's buzzing and beeping. You probably heard my email uh, dinging, my outlook throughout this episode. So um, I do think that there's something there, but I, I'm not sold on our current conceptualization of sensory processing disorder. Um, so I don't feel comfortable making that diagnosis. Again, it's not in my wheelhouse. Um, I do think that there needs to be treatments for it. I'm not sold that sensory integration therapy um, is the best treatment, uh, but I'm interested to hear people's thoughts. So send me thoughts to ctayllo 41 at cbu.edu. You can put the subject line mailbag. Uh, the mailbag's been pretty quiet lately. So send me episode ideas, send me stuff. Um, I'm thinking that my next episode I might do on therapy dogs. So we had an event um, right before fall break. A lot of students had midterms and midterm week is really stressful. And we had the animal shelter, the local animal shelter here, um, allow us to bring a few dogs on campus. Uh, and they were like some of the tamer dogs for what we called bark break. Um, and so the dogs were around campus and the, the students could come out and they could pet them. And it was sort of therapeutic. Um, and I had a couple of students ask, like, can you write a letter for me to have a therapy dog? You're a psychologist. Can you do that? I was like, well, I, let me do an episode on that. We can talk about animal assisted therapy. We can talk about therapy dogs, what's involved, what sort of diagnoses go along with that. I think it'd be a really good episode topic, but send me more episode topics. Um, I'm going to go enjoy my fall break. Um, I'm actually presenting, I say enjoy my fall break. I'm presenting at the College Autism Network um, Conference, uh, their annual summit um, in Nashville on Wednesday of this week. So I'll be at Vanderbilt on Wednesday of this week. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So if any of y'all are at the College Autism Summit, um, come say hi. And then uh, in two weeks, I'm presenting in Washington, D.C. So another conference. So lots of presentations, but I'll try to squeeze in some time for uh, an episode or two along the way. Um, email me, ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. And until next time, take care and stay well.